have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Isaiah chapter 52. Isaiah 52, all the way back in the Old Testament. If you don't have a Bible, um, there are pew Bibles in the racks under the chairs. Feel free to grab and take one of those with you. That's our gift to you. Um, We also will have texts on the screen for you to follow along with this morning. But I would love for you to open your Bibles to Isaiah 52. And I know what you're thinking. Um, Isn't Jesus in the New Testament? Shouldn't we be in the New Testament on Easter Sunday? Um, But hang with me. Uh, This is a glorious text that speaks about Jesus from Isaiah 52. And the title of today's sermon is Victory in Death and Life. Um, Because today is the day that we joyfully, as the Church of Christ, celebrate the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And I want to start us out by reading a quote from John Stott. And this comes from his book, The Cross of Christ. He says this. He says, We are not to regard the cross as defeat and the resurrection as victory. Rather, the cross was the victory won, and the resurrection, the victory endorsed, proclaimed, and demonstrated. That is profoundly true. Uh, Many want to claim that the story of Easter is just made up after the fact by Christians who needed to put a positive spin on their hero being executed. But what I want us to see this morning is that this isn't the case. This text that we're marveling at this morning was written by Christians, or or wasn't written by Christians, after Jesus' death. It, It was written by a Jewish prophet 700 years before Christ was born. And it's not a text that foretells of a Messiah who escapes death, but of one who dies for sinners like you and me. What I want us to see is that this was the plan of God Almighty from before the foundation of the world. Good Friday wasn't a divine tragedy, but it was the greatest moment in human history. So let's dive into this glorious text. Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13. This is the word of the Lord. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told, them they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. 
and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. There is enough in this chapter of Isaiah to marvel at for months. But since we've only got 35 minutes, what I want to do this morning is fly over at a high level and allow us to gaze at the beauty of these truths about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our main four points from this text are these. Number one, the servant is prophet, priest, and king. Number two, the servant is rejected. Number three, the servant is the essence of Christianity. And fourth and finally, the servant rose from the grave. So let's dive in at point one. The servant is prophet, priest, and king. Uh, Without going into extreme detail here, Adam... From Adam and Eve fame, the first human being on the planet was God's first prophet, priest, and king. He was given the role of prophet, speaking God's word to Eve. He was given the role of priest, working and cultivating the garden, which was the first temple. And he was given the role of king, keeping and ruling, authoritatively naming all of the animals all under God's ultimate rule. We know how the story went. Adam, unfortunately, failed at all three of those roles. But the story of Scripture wasn't over. God had a plan from the very, very beginning. He promised that an offspring of Eve would one day come and crush the head of Satan. And he would do that through perfectly fulfilling all three roles of prophet, priest, and king. In every way that Adam failed, this promised offspring would succeed. Throughout scripture, we see this promise made repetitively. This hope held out for those in sin's bondage. Here in Isaiah, we see it stated yet again. Look with me at Isaiah 52, verse 13. He says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. 
He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. So from the very beginning here, we're talking about the Messiah, the one who would come to save God's people. And this is the beginning of what's known as the servant song in Isaiah. I want us to notice here who the speaker is in these opening verses of the song. It's not Isaiah the prophet. It's God himself speaking. And he starts with a command. He says, behold. He's saying, look, give your attention to, gaze upon, fix your eyes here. Behold. Then he tells us what this servant will be like. As we're gazing on, as we're beholding, he says, he will act wisely, which can also be translated, he will prosper. He'll be high and lifted up. He'll be exalted. This messianic servant will be a king. Whatever we're about to learn about him, know from the beginning that this king will succeed. Then, verses 14 and the beginning of 15, it says, As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. This messianic servant will astonish people. Why? Because his appearance will be marred beyond human semblance. Looking back through the lens of the brutal crucifixion, we know how this came to be. Then, look at the beginning of verse 15. So shall he sprinkle many nations. So how shall he sprinkle many nations? What, what's that about? Well, this is sacrificial language. It's actually temple and atonement language from Leviticus chapter 16, where the priest would go into the temple on the day of atonement, one day a year, and the priest would sprinkle the blood of an animal on the altar. Why would he do that? To make atonement for the sins of the people. So, the messianic servant will be a king, and the messianic servant will be a priest who makes atonement for the nations. Then, the rest of verse 15, kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Now, kings are usually the ones issuing commands, while everyone else is silent. But look at here. These kings of the earth, their mouths are shut. This messianic servant, as the word of God, causes them to see and to understand. This is the role of prophet. Prophet, priest, and king. Prophet, priest, and king. This text, 700 years before Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, blew the trumpet in expectation. So, God calls our attention to behold this prophet, priest, and king, his servant. Point two, the servant, same servant we've just been talking about, the servant is rejected. Look with me at verses one through three of our text. Chapter 53. 
Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Now we're, we're back to the speaker, not being God himself, but Isaiah the prophet. And he's telling us that this messianic servant will be despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Again, I want to remind us that Jesus' life wasn't a tragedy. This is what God not only foretold would happen, but ordained to happen. Further, our Savior and Lord wouldn't be wealthy or physically appealing or overwhelmingly popular, Isaiah tells us. Take that in. Next time you hear a prosperity preacher telling you that Jesus' goal for you is that you be healthy, wealthy, and accepted by everyone, remember this text. Jesus was none of these things. He came as a suffering servant who would be despised and rejected. But again, this wasn't a loss. This was by design. That's why we call Good Friday, when Jesus was brutally murdered on a cross, that's why we call Good Friday good. It was gloriously part of God's plan for the redemption of his people. So, the servant is prophet, priest, and king. And the servant was rejected. Point three. The servant is the essence of Christianity. The servant is the essence of Christianity. I want us to see and hear this clearly this morning. The servant described in this text and what he accomplished is the core of Christianity. Not self-help, not being a better dad or mom or student, not being a better more moral person, not being more productive or an active participant in society. This servant and what he accomplished is the core of Christianity. If you want to know Christianity at its most foundational level, here it is. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 through 4 and then show you how this servant in Isaiah 53 is described. So 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4, Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The core of Christianity is that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day. So let's start with why this had to happen. Look in our text in Isaiah 53, verse 6. He says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. Every single one of us. All. All have gone astray 
and turned, every one to his own way. Romans 3, 23 puts it this way. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us, none of us are exempt from this. We have all rebelled against God and against his holy law and his holy person. We've metaphorically slapped the king of the universe in the face and turned our back on him. The just penalty for that is death. Each and every one of us deserves death for this act of treason against the good and righteous king. You see, Christianity is about first acknowledging ourselves to be sinners. It's not about thinking that we're better than others. It's not about a holier-than-thou attitude. It's about knowing our own depravity and humbling ourselves before the feet of the king. The bad news is that we've all gone astray and turned everyone to his own way. But the good news is this, that there was someone to pay the just penalty that we owe, the penalty of death. Look at verses 8, 9, and 12 back in our text. It says, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? He was killed, executed. This wasn't a mistake or an accident. He was cut off out of the land of the living. Verse 9, And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death. He was buried. So he's killed and he's buried. Verse 12. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the, the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death. Again, it's crystal clear in this text that the servant would die. And we know that his death was penal in nature. In other words, it was a punishment in a legal sense. Look at verse 5. So clear. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. So I'll ask us, whose sin caused the cross? Whose sin caused the cross? Not Jesus's, ours. It's been said that it's our sin more than the Roman nails that executed Jesus. That's right. Again, John Stott so clearly articulates this by saying this. He says, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. He took the chastisement and the wounds. And look what we get. Peace and healing. Peace and healing. It's amazing. If you're here and you're not a Christian, and you've always wondered why we as Christians celebrate Easter so ferociously, 
Or, or even why we gather as a church every Sunday. This is it. It's because of this breathtaking, unbelievable news that Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. And we get peace and healing. He was pierced, crushed, chastised, and wounded. We deserve that because of our sins against the king of the universe. But Jesus paid it all. We, in turn, get peace and healing. We get reconciliation with God and spiritual wholeness restored at Christ, the suffering servant's expense. Because of our sin, Christ died as a penal sacrifice. But in order for him to do that, his death had to be substitutionary. In other words, if I owe a debt, it doesn't matter at all to me that someone pays the bank money unless it's paid in my place. It's one, it's one thing to say that Jesus paid the penalty of a criminal or, or was even cursed by God. It's another to say that he paid the penalty of a criminal and was cursed by God in my place. One of those is just bad luck. The other is the most glorious truth in the entire world. Jesus didn't just pay a penalty. He paid it as our substitute. Look with me at verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. These verbs are significant. He has borne our griefs. This word literally means to carry or to lift up or to raise off of. When Jesus died, that's exactly what he did. He went in our place and lifted our sins off of us. He bore our griefs. Second, he carried our sorrows. Again, imagine someone taking a yoke off of your shoulders and putting it on his own. That's what Jesus did. As our substitute, he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. These were both loads and burdens, by the way, that were too much for us to carry on our own. A crushing, back-breaking weight. The weight of sin that's too heavy to carry. And this text tells us that Jesus lifts it he shoulders it. He takes care of it for you. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says this. It says, for our sake, he made him, meaning Jesus, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for sin. Not his sin, but ours. And he died in our place as our substitute. Third, he died an atoning death. The death of the servant made atonement. Look again at verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And here it is. And the Lord has laid on him 
the iniquity of us all. Atonement is a word that in one essence means the removal of guilt. The reconciliation of God and man. Without atonement, none of us could ever be unified with God. So when you see the word atonement, you should think at one Because it's what makes us at one with God again. We've already hit on this a little bit earlier with verse 15. But in Leviticus chapter 16, there's this day called the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement. And on this day, there were two different goats. Two goats. One was killed, and its blood gets sprinkled on the altar. The other goat was known as the scapegoat. Maybe you've heard that language before. On this goat, the scapegoat, the priest would lay his hands on it and confess the sins of the community. That goat was then sent out of the camp, symbolically carrying away the sins of the people every year. Here, Jesus represents and fulfills both roles of both of those goats. The blood that's sprinkled and the scapegoats who carries away the sin of the people. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus is the essence and foundation and core of Christianity. He died as our penal substitutionary atonement. He's why we sing. He's why we gather. He's why we live lives of gratefulness and service. He's the reason why we celebrate on Good Friday and Easter and every day of our lives. He's the reason why we persevere in suffering. He's the reason why we hate our sin, because we know that it nailed him to the cross. He's the reason why we then pursue holiness, because it honors him and it brings him glory. He's the reason we worship and live lives of worship. Again, he's the center of our message of hope, not popular psychology, not be a good person so God will love you more, not health and wealth, but Jesus Christ crucified for our sin. Our sin kills and is the reason for all of the brokenness in this world. Our sin kills, but Jesus saves and delivers and reconciles. That's our message. That's what we have to offer the world. Jesus, the suffering servant from Isaiah 53. But the servant didn't just die to save us. He rose again from the grave three days later. So point four, the servant rose from the grave. While this chapter of Isaiah is clear that the servant dies, I hope you've seen that, it's also clear that this isn't the end of the story. Look with me at verses 10 through 12. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, 
Make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Now, Isaiah isn't using the word resurrection, but his point can't be missed. Look at verse 10. After making himself a guilt offering, number one, he shall see his offspring, meaning those who he saved by dying for them. Two, he shall prolong his days, meaning he's going to live for a long time, forever actually. Third, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand, meaning God's great purposes will flourish in and through this servant. This isn't a portrait of a dead Messiah, but of an alive one who has conquered and walked through victorious. Then look at verse 11. Again, because of the anguish of his soul for sinners, it says, he shall see and be satisfied. He's alive. And his work is complete. He's satisfied at the fruit of his labors. Second, by his knowledge, the servant will make many to be accounted righteous. In other words, through him, many will be justified and made right with God. This is something that was affirmed and proclaimed through Christ's resurrection. If if he didn't rise from the dead... If Jesus didn't rise from the grave, we'd have no reason to believe that God accepted his sacrifice. But he did. He rose from the grave for our justification. Romans chapter 4, verses 24 and 25. Paul says that righteousness will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses, and raised for our justification. Hear this loud and clear. A dead Jesus doesn't justify, but a raised one does. A dead Jesus doesn't justify, but a raised one does. Back to verse 11. It says, He shall bear their iniquities. In one sense, he he bore our sins on the cross in that moment in history. But in another sense, he continues to bear our sins forever, standing and making intercession for our sin. So check this out. As long as he lives, which is going to be for an eternity, as long as he lives, it's living proof that that your sins and my sins were dealt with definitively once and for all. His resurrection continues to affirm that our sins were carried. He's satisfied. You're justified. And your sins are carried by a living Jesus. Do you understand how amazing that is? Finally, look with me at verse 12. After dying, he divides the spoil with the strong. Think about this. Dividing spoil isn't for those who lost the war, is it? 
It's for those who won. It's for those who have triumphed and defeated their enemies. That's what this servant Jesus did after being hung on the cross. He didn't lose. He won. And he won all of those who would turn from sin and self and to trust in him. Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 10. It says this. It says, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. I love that. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. Verse 8. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And there they will see me. We are not to regard the cross as defeat and the resurrection as victory. Rather, the cross was the victory won, and the resurrection, the victory endorsed, proclaimed, and demonstrated. If you're here this morning, and you've never surrendered your life to this prophet, priest, and king, this victorious, suffering servant, Jesus, we invite you to today. He's the center of Christianity. He's the center of history. He's the center of the entire universe. In him, there's forgiveness of sin and true everlasting life. He died for our sin and was raised to make us right with God. That's the story of Easter. That's the story of Christianity. That's the story of the entire world. If you'd like to talk more about this or have questions, I or Rob or any other Christian in this place would love to talk to you after the service. Come find us or shoot me an email. This is the most important thing that we can possibly ever talk about. So happy Easter, everyone. He is risen. He is risen Let's pray.